This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Beverly Bowers Jennings from Hilton Head Island, and she has produced a very interesting book entitled Shrimp Tales, Small Bites of History. Well, Miss Jennings, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. All right, let's first talk a little bit about you and how this book came about. Well, when I moved to South Carolina, I was involved in getting my master naturalist through Clemson and the Low Country Institute on Spring Island in 2010. And I met the uh, one of my instructors, um, who was, is absolutely fa- fabulous, and his wife was asked to take the old Lemon Island Marina and Fish Market and create a museum, the Port Royal Sound Maritime Center. And I asked if I could help her and became involved in doing exhibits. And I have exhibits in the old shucking room on the history of shrimping, crabbing, and oystering. And I first interviewed about 35 shrimpers and just really enjoyed them so much. And I was looking for a way to sort of expand, and I had a lot of pictures and information. And one of my friends said, hey, why don't you do something Uh, on shrimping, because there really are not a lot of books like there are on oystering and crabbing. So that was how this kind of started. Okay. Let's start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. We know people were catching shrimp for use from Mm -hmm. from the colonial days onward, but as an organized Mm -hmm. business, it really started in the late 19th century, did it not? Well, the people who lived on the coast, they ate what they caught, for sustainability. But as a product, a commercial product, the shrimp were not sold. The Italians and the Sicilians and the Portuguese, when they arrived in Florida in the early 1900s, they thought the shrimp were worms. And they had fed them to their livestock and used them as fertilizer. And there was a lull in their target species of fish And there was a lot of shrimp, and they decided, well, if coastal people can eat them, people can eat them. So they started trying to market them, particularly in bars, and they also had to figure out how to preserve them. But fortunately, the railroad system had already created refrigerated cars. The blocks of ice were put in at stations along the way, and when they got a lot of fish— they were able to start shipping them up to Fulton's in New York and eventually all across the United States. So that's that's how it really began. They not only were shipping uh, fresh shrimp, uh, they began to can them and preserve them that way. And again, that started in Florida. Yes. Well, they, they dried them. They would put them in jars. They put them in cans, drying them out on wood. That was a popular way that the coastal people had also dried shrimp. All right. They dried shrimp. I'm trying to, I don't, I'm not familiar with it. They, I, it's not something that, that is sold, um, but it was it was a way to, to preserve them. It, and it was not done commercially. Okay. All right. Well, the boats from Florida began coming up the South Carolina coast. Yes. Shrimp migrate. Shrimp don't stay in, in, in one place. They move. And when they were starting to catch shrimp, they had to figure out how to catch them. I mean, the early catching was cast nets, seine nets, and the otter nets were used, and they eventually added um, bigger nets that would be able to be pulled behind power boats and, and to get the, the shrimp. So they, they had to create the, the nets and the boats, and shrimp boats are an interesting boat because there's no one pattern for a shrimp boat. They have used old government ambulance boats. They have used, they've taken sailboats, schooners, and cut them down. And there is no particular place that the wheelhouse is. Some are fore, some are right in the middle of the boat, and some are aft. The more popular place is to have them on the front of the of the boat and the working operation on the back. But there's no set set pattern. 
I think you point out that not only is there no set pattern, they're not generally not produced in big uh, shipyards. Sometimes they are literally somebody's backyard. Correct. That's what they often, in the early days, they made them in, in backyards, and often they did two boats at a time. And the, to get the wood to bend, they would put them in the the steamers, like the oyster steamers, to make the, the wood bend. There were people who, when they were making boats, would go out into the forest, and they would look at the um, the live oaks, and they would be able to see an L shape in the way the branches were, and they knew that that could be a keel or that could be a rib, or there were certain people who would go out and pick trees and get the parts to to put into the boats. And then down in the Florida area, um, particularly uh, like Desco, they started mass producing the the boats, um, primarily. Florida was where boats, um, and that's where the Greeks built boats. Okay, and they were wooden boats. They were wooden boats. The early boats were wooden boats. And one of the sidebars in in the book talks about the importance of fiberglass. Well, let's talk about that because it's important to you in your childhood. (laughs) Yes, it is. Uh, The... When I was six years old, my father built me a boat, and one of his friends said to him, it's just a little rowboat, why don't you fiberglass it? And my father said, oh, really? And he said, oh, yes, that's a new thing to do. And this was with the sheets of fiberglass and then the pink resin over it. And my boat was called Little Fish. (laughs) So it was interesting to me, and that was the very early um, time when they were fiberglassing boats. And it was so valuable to the shrimping industry because those old wooden boats, just they needed a lot of maintenance and, you know, was it worms or rot or whatever. But when they put fiberglass on those hulls, they were able to get another 20 to 25 years out of the boats. Wow. And it was at a cost that was something that they could afford when they could not afford to buy new boats. Ever used metal boats? Uh, there were some metal boats that were made, but uh, trying to do all the welding and things was was um, with the fumes could, could be quite dangerous. Okay. And so they they really didn't. There there's some. It was really more. Um, they went into fiberglass hulls. All right. So, but but pretty much the design of the boats, as you said, there's no set pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, but the wooden boats with fiberglass over them. It's pretty traditional now. Right? Yes, yes. There's still quite a number of those. Of course, Desco and places like that, they did repeat the their designs, but there's no one design that you can pick as like the dyer dinghy, which is one way it's built. Well, you know, I, I, I keep thinking of other times when you could go to Shem's Creek, and this was 30 years ago, where the shrimp boats would actually still be in Shem Creek. But that's part of the story because you go up the South Carolina coast and, you know, let's start with Port Royal. Port Royal, well, or even the book um, after St. Augustine and Fernandina, it moves up to Thunderbolt and Savannah, which was a big area with the Amboses and the Majones. One of my favorite things is in that chapter, 1948, they first flash froze shrimp. And the women were in their white outfits in one building peeling shrimp. And it tended to be the black people who were. And then there are pictures of the women pinning shrimp on stainless steel pens and running them through egg mixture, bread mixture, and into a room minus 70 degrees. And that was the first flash frozen pan-ready shrimp. And the Amboses, they had a supermarket, created that. And it became very, very profitable. Very profitable. And the Amboses already, with their business, had a network for distribution. So it was... They were able to do that. Then they, in 1953, partnered with Carrier, um, a distributor, and created the first refrigerated shrimp boat. 
Miss Trade Winds. Oh. And that was a really big step forward because in the past, they had to load 300-pound blocks of ice by a pair of tongs down into the hold of a boat. And the early docks were stationary. So at low tide, it was a, it could be 10 feet down practically to a boat that they were loading on one tongue and a man receiving it in the hole and trying to get it in place was very dangerous. So this opened up the having the refrigerator. They didn't have to have the blocks to chip. They didn't have to have uh, the chippers to cover the ice as they caught it. They could uh, put them in bags and put them in the freezer and save a lot of space and stay out longer. Let's talk about the pre-refrigeration days because uh, you mentioned chipping. Yes. Uh, so they mm-hmm. they they bring in the nets, the shrimp go in mm-hmm. the hole, but the blocks of ice mm-hmm. are shaved, are they mm-hmm. not? Well, actually, they only bring the net in halfway, and they have these bags, and they hang them typically with the wheelhouse in the front. They bring the bags in over the stern, and they have a these bags have a little string on the bottom of them that they pull, and there's the catch dumps out onto the, the deck. And then they sort the bycatch, which is non-shrimp, out of the catch. And that's when they put them in baskets and they take them down the hole. And then they sh- they have a three-pronged shaver. And they would chip up the ice and cover the baskets of shrimp. And, of course, they would melt. So the blocks melted, the ice that was chipped would melt, so they couldn't stay out. It really extended periods of time, whereas now with the refrigerated boats, they can stay out 15, 20 days um, until they've filled up their hull. Okay. So the shrimp are just refrigerated. They are not frozen. Is that correct? They're, the, uh, the, the, the very new boats now are. They are frozen. They On the stern, they have a very cold salt bath, that they can flash freeze them in, and and they put them in in bags now, not in baskets, and they stack them down in the in the, their freezer hole in their boats. So sometimes you'll go in, into a restaurant way away from the coast, and they'll mm-hmm. say never frozen shrimp. Well, that's kind of <laughs> <laughs> uh, if it's more than a certain number of days, that's pretty tough to do, because <laughs> unfortunately, shrimp is the most perishable seafood. Even more so than crabs and oysters? I think so. As I understand it, that it's the most. Um, and one of the sidebars is kind of interesting. Charles Gay out at Gay Seafood on St. Helena, a big uh, area that a lot of shrimp boats gone out from. He will not allow a customer to buy his fresh shrimp unless there's ice in the bag. And as one of the sidebars says, he said, put a plastic bag on your arm and go get in the car. How quickly does your arm start to sweat? And he said, if you don't ice the shrimp and you get in your car to drive home and they start to get hot, then they start to spoil. Mm. Well, growing up on the Gulf Coast and dealing with the fresh (laughs) seafood, uh, if they were starting to turn a little pink? Oh, yeah. You, you don't eat they, them. They became bait. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Primarily our shrimp, our first of this season shrimp are the brown shrimp. And those shrimp, um, the opening is either in May or June, depending on when the DNR has decided that enough eggs have been laid that the fall crop will be plentiful. And that, that uh, brown season goes until about August. Then in August is when the white shrimp are caught, and they are much more plentiful and are caught until December or January. We don't typically in South Carolina catch the pink shrimp. Well, we were into Port Royal. Let's let's all get them moving to South Carolina. I know there's stories Sorry. elsewhere, but okay. you know, let's let's mm-hmm. move into the South Carolina part of it. Mm-hmm. You told an interesting story about a shrimper named Cubby Wilson. Oh, 
Cubby. Cubby, such a wonderful man. Everybody liked Cubby. And Cubby grew up in Port Royal, and then he um, he learned every aspect of shrimping, even sleeping on the docks to, to gain um, his, his knowledge. And he became a captain on one of the boats, and he was in Florida for a while, came back, and then Willie Shepper, who was the um, head of the bank in Buford, had three boats that had been repossessed, and Cubby wanted to buy a boat, and Willie said, you're such an honest person, I will sell you a boat. And it was very, he was the first black man to own his own boat, and that was huge. In, and this is in the Buford area? This yeah. is in the Buford area, yes, out of Port Royal, and he paid it back very quickly. What time period is this? This is probably in the 50s. Okay, in the nineteen fifties. Yes, that that would have been that would have been a very unusual. Yes, he was uh, the the first first black person. And Buford, a certain shrimp boat, Miss Lillian, became world famous uh, thanks to uh, Winston Groom's boat, Forrest Gump. Yes. And Miss Lillian's now in ruins. Mm, yes. Well, tell the story of Miss Lillian. Well, Miss Lillian was built in Okatee. South Carolina by Charles Henry Sutler in his yard. And it is a great example of a backyard boat. He had built several other boats. And then when he built this one, she was the Miss Lillian, and then she was Miss Sherry, and eventually she became the Jenny for the Forrest Gump boat. And Unfortunately, she was sold to Planet Hollywood, and she's never shrimped again. And she's falling apart. She is falling apart. She's just on a lot somewhere, or I, I it's I don't know. I, that's okay. just what I've been told. Okay, well, <laughs> I haven't seen it. But she she had her moment of fame. She did. She did. Well, Buford. In terms of the business part of it, uh, canneries and processing plants opened up uh, on the Carolina coast. There was a big one on it at Edisto, and these were all very labor-intensive. Would you like to be a shrimp peeler? Well, um, I do pe- peel shrimp when, when I'm serving them, but I think to do it day in and day out yeah, is very difficult. And it was very low pay, and it was cold. It was like the oyster people and, and the crabbers. The buildings were damp. They did step stand on wooden boxes, platforms, to get keep their feet off the wet floor. The temperatures can't be too hot, and they were often were paid by the pot. I was going to. Yeah. And they're typically the oyster people were paid by tokens because they lived near their factories and had no transportation. But the Mecklenburgs up in the Charleston area and the Majones in the Buford and Savannah area, they had tokens that they paid some of their uh, the peelers with in the early days by the pot. Well, them, and also paid by the this pot. token, did they have to shop at the company store basically? Is it? Uh, they did not have a company store for the shrimpers. They'd turn in their pot of shrimp, oh, I, and they'd get a, co- a, a token, and then they could cash in. Okay. How large was a pot? A gallon? Yes, probably about a gallon. About a okay. gallon. But yes. that's, that is a lot of shrimp. And we're talking about either sometimes you just you head it, you behead it. Uh, yes. We always just call it head them. Head them. And mm-hmm. uh, they stay in their shell, and others— it goes through the com- the complete process of deshelling and deveining the shrimp, and there's a little gizmo that'll do that in one fell swoop, right? There is. You just put it right up in the top in the back, and uh, the whole thing slides off. And it's interesting. Yeah, in the book, um, I'm out at uh, St. Helena's at the old Dobson place, where Sea Eagle Market has uh, women and men who peel shrimp. And one of the ladies, she uses one of those, and you can see the picture of her hands in the book. They do not want to be photographed, but they were very generous to let me 
photographed their hands and they were happy to speak with me. And the, the ladies, when they're peeling, they sway, they often sing songs, and they don't have to look, just like the crab peelers and the oyster sharks. They don't have to look what they're doing when they're peeling shrimp. And often they just take the heads off because the heads take up more space and they add weight. All right, Beverly, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with Beverly Bowers Jennings about her book, Shrimp Tales, Small Bites of History. All right, we were heading shrimp. And of course, shrimp have a snout. Yes, the rostrum. You get get pricked. (laughs) You can. Your hands get messed up. They, they do. Um, but they, the ladies know how to do it so that they don't get pricked. And it's interesting that the tables are raised in the center where they have the big buckets and then the containers that they're putting their peel shrimp in. And down the sides, there are troughs that water runs through. Out at Dobson's, it's water that comes from the creek that's just circulated up. And that takes the, the peelings and things right back into the water. You've told me that now I use for that the shrimp peelings and yes, um, they're creating redux flow batteries with the chitin that's in the shells, and that has a carbon and nitrogen, and they can use it to, for the electrodes in the and la- it's in large scale batteries, particularly at warehouses or or big um, factories, but it's a way to use it and and. Um, they're they're expanding. Well, that that's good to know. And of course, any good chef always will keep his shrimp hulls to make a stock. Yes, and one of the recipes in here, um, Roddy Beasley, when he was making his shrimp and grits, he would take the shells and he would put them in a skillet and brown them up a little bit before he put them in his stock, which I hadn't heard of before. You not only have lots of photographs, you do have recipes scattered throughout the, the book. There's, there's a two-page spread with one or two recipes at the end of every chapter, and there are nine chapters in the book. And how did you choose the recipes? Well, um, I liked them. <laughs> <laughs> Some are from shrimpers, and uh, quite a number from sh- shrimpers. And uh, I tried to put in shrimp recipes that uh, I thought had a history or would be fun and in the Buford section, Jack Chaplin was a shrimper, and his wife, Sally McTeer Chaplin, was Sheriff McTeer's mm-hmm. yeah. daughter. And her mother was very famous for her shrimp paste. And Sally said that really uh, people f- didn't think that they were having a, a proper spread if they didn't have her mother's shrimp paste. And her husband was well known for his shrimp burgers. And he mashed his shrimp by rolling them with a Coke bottle. And people used to love to go to his boat and have his shrimp burgers. So they are featured on a double spread. And in the upper right-hand corner of the recipe page, there's a gullah word, gullah word of food. All right. And what is that word? Well, each each. Each page oh, has okay. a different, uh, each recipe section has a different gullah word. All right. Well, I'm just going to open to one and. Here's one. Uh, I can describe the bo- the top of the box from the Sea Eagle Market for 100 pounds of shrimp. There's a picture of that. And then the gullah word is F-L-U-W-W-U-H, which is flower. And that's flower or a plant flower. And N-Y-A-M, nam, which is eat or gnaw. So each chapter has just a little, because a lot of the shrimpers are gullah. And so this is a connection. Well, when you get further up the coast to McClellanville, there are also a lot of white shrimpers. Yes. And McClellanville, the, the first Saturday in the month of May is their blessing of the fleet. And this book has a chapter on blessings of the fleet, because when they they came over from the old country, the Catholics had been practicing blessings of the fleet, and they brought that process practice with them. And some of them have miss blessing of the fleet, and they have music, and they have 
lots of food. Well, of course, the blessing of the fleet is usually performed by, by a Catholic priests, but a lot of the current trimpers are not Catholic. Right. They, have a, they actually have a priest and or a minister. And the boats pass in front of a dock where they're standing and blessing them for prosperity, in catching, for safety. And then the boats, sometimes they pass more than once um, by the, the dock. And afterward, they put a wreath in the water in remembrance of those who've been lost at sea. And there is actually a memorial on land in McClellanville, is there not? A beautiful memorial there, yes. Listing the people who've been lost at sea, and they have two bronze boots on pedestal and and a lovely saying, and that is in the McClellanville chapter, which also has a section by um, William Baldwin. He was a shrimper architect. He's a right. Billy's done everything. He's done everything. He's done everything, and he very sweetly contributed to the book. We've we've talked about the blessing and the and the, the monument because shrimping is dangerous. It was more dangerous when you were talking about dropping three hundred pounds of <laughs> ice on somebody, uh, but particularly in the in the days before radar and all the warnings, uh, shrimpers could be caught at sea, lost at sea with storms. Yes, it was amazing that how they were able to navigate. One of the sidebars talks about the lead line, and that was how they uh, were measured how deep the water was. It was marked in measurements with the if a man's arms are spread out, that's about six feet. So there were knots on the on the rope that they dropped, and there was a a lead weight that was hollowed out at the bottom, and it had wax in it. When it hit the bottom, it would pick up pieces. And if they were over rocks, they didn't want to put their nets down because shrimp don't live in rocks, they live in mud. So these lead weights and the people who would call out the distances were very important for them. And how they were able to navigate before that, that was, you know, this tree and that tree and and things moved. So, I mean, it must have been very lonely out there. And storms come up and I've heard some very uh, interesting stories. How how large is a shrimp boat crew? How large is, well, there are some people who unfortunately have gone out just as one. And the captain, he'll put a, a device on his steering wheel that holds it in place, and he'll go back and he man the nets and then drive the boat. And usually it's um, a captain and a striker. The so striker would be his to, helper. Well, how do they maneuver those nets? I mean, now you've got machinery that can do that. Yes, but in the, but in at the, when they got started in the early 20th century that had to be out they had to be hauled out by hand. They had to haul them by hand. They did. And particularly there's a a, a box rig boat uh, in in the in the book in the Hilton Head chapter and they that's how they had a winch on the back and they just physically pulled the nets up. Then they went to uh, winches and that's a, a pretty interesting story. It's like a dance because they're working their feet on the levers and they're working their hands because they're generally, well, in the very beginning, there was one net that went out, but then it was two nets. And so it's now it's more two nets or four nets. You can't let one net out without the other being balanced because shrimp boats are very shallow and they have those outriggers. And you see them at dock, at the dock with the outriggers up. When they're out running and trawling, the outriggers are out and they're triangular squares at the end of them. And those are stabilizers. That keeps the boat from rocking as much. And they, so when they're putting the nets out with their feet, they're, they're letting out the, the chains and they're regulating where the, the, the nets are going. It, it's, it's, um, it's a real interesting dance. And you didn't just check it out. You actually did it. Yes. What about 
working in the canneries, did you actually go in there and head shrimp and... No, those ladies didn't need my help there. <laughs> and they don't have the big, um, in this area, uh, I don't believe any of those big canneries are, are still in operation. I didn't find any. No, I mean, that, there was one on Edisto that closed years ago. Yes, and the ones on uh, in Buford and down in uh, the Thunderbolt area, they're, they're long gone. I'm, I tried to go up to one of the Majoni factories up near Hollywood and... I couldn't find a remnant of it. What's caused all those canneries or processing plants to close down? Well, I think it's um, the, a, a number of factors. One of them is the competition with foreign seafood. Another is the competition with tourism. Tourism is taking up the waterfronts. In Port Royal, where they used to do a lot of packing um, off that big dock, um, at the end of Port Royal, um, those sheds that were just up the river end of the that huge dock, they're all gone. All that's gone, and so uh, and it was closed for a while too. Tourism is taking the dock space, and there are not as many people catching. I, I believe they send them to plants down more. Um, on the Gulf Coast? In the Gulf Coast. I'm trying to... The, the plants are more in the Gulf Coast. Okay. Yes. Well, let's talk about the future of shrimping in South Carolina. Where are their boats still operating? Are they still operating out of Port Royal? Port Royal, um, they have about 11 or 12 boats at the dock, and I don't believe any of them are operational. They're making those boats move, and they're going to rebuild the 11th Street dock and hope that they will get working boats back. In Hilton Head, the Toomer family, they have four blue boats, and they started um, having them dock behind Hudson's Seafood with their 65-foot boats, the two brothers, Jeff and Skip. And then Jeff bought an 85-foot boat a couple years ago, and he kept that... He, when they're in port, they tie up there. And last year, his brother bought a one that's close to 100 feet, and that's down at Hudson's Retail now. So we have four working boats out of Hilton Head, and there's a fifth one. The McDonald brothers have a, have a boat behind Buckingham Landing, but it it it's in perfectly good shape, but it it doesn't work. They they don't shrimp right now. When you go to Shem Creek. They used to have five tied, rafted to each other up and down that creek. And now I think there are about nine that, that are working boats. And Cherry Point has several boats that are working out of there. The last time I was at Edisto, they only had one boat. And is that there. the Flowers boat? Flower seafood? In, in yes. No, the Flowers, um, they have um, pretty much uh, gotten out of it um, one of the he one is has a, his seafood market, yeah. and um, his back is really bad, so he is not um, he's not shrimping. So it's declining. It's it, it's uh, they're just less and less boats. There are less people willing to to do it. Even though what people like Jack Chaplin had said, it's it's the best life. Uh, you go out every day. You you're your own boss. And you do enjoy the day coming up. And that was before Ted's. He said, every day when I pull the nets in, you don't know what's going to be in it, what kind of presents or what, what things we might pull up with the catch. Uh, Larry Toomer said he went, came back as a teenager and got back into shrimping because he was his own boss. He doesn't have to sign a time clock for somebody. And that's the beauty of shrimping. You do it at your own time and your own way. And it's very peaceful out there. There are times when it's very scary, but um, they, they love the sea. Well, you live on Hilton Head, and part of the story of shrimping on Hilton Head, you said there's a dividing before the bridge and after the bridge. 
What did you mean by that? Well, before the bridge, the island was very self-sufficient and insulated. When I was speaking with Emory Campbell, I said, there are no pictures of the fish camp, Emory. And he said, we didn't have cameras before the mid-50s. We were very insulated. And Emory Campbell lived a couple miles from the fish camp. And this building was used by Charlie Simmons for the ferries, which before the bridge, the ferry went out from the fish camp. And you, it's a restaurant now, but if you go in that restaurant, you can look on the floor and you can see lines in the concrete. There are four rectangles and a little a hall in between because there were rooms that people could stay in. They'd bring their belongings with them, put them on the boat, spend the night, and then they'd, they'd go the boat the next day. Now, Emory Campbell would hear the shrimp boats coming in while all this was going on, and he could recognize by their motors which boats they were, and he would get himself down to the dock to go and head shrimp um, of the catch that came in while he listened to the jute joint in the fish camp, and kind of he could dance and rock to the music as he was heading shrimp. But it was very, very different, and I mean, not to have cameras, and 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 the blacks and the whites lived next door to each other, and they lived in perfect harmony. There was a lot of farming, raised tomatoes, and a lot of vegetable farming and animals, and and it it changed when they started to build uh, sea pines when Fraser came. And you're part of that change. You came, you, <laughs> you 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 decided to move to South Carolina. Yes. Yes, it's such a beautiful beach. All right, Beverly, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Beverly Bowers Jennings about her book, Shrimp Tales, Small Bites of History. All right, in the chapter on McClellanville, you quote somebody as saying, there used to be 100 boats that operate out of McClellanville, which is a huge fleet, and now there are barely 20. Yes, well, Hilton had had 100 boats that were worked out of there. There were so many boats, and there was so much shrimp. And because they could ship it, and people were starting to love it, it was in the 70s and 80s, it was big business and, and very active business. Are the shrimp decreasing? Have they been over-shrimped? They seem to be finding enough shrimp to catch. It's just that there are not enough people to catch it. Probably the populations are down, but they're, they just don't have, the young people aren't doing it, and it, it's expensive. Fuel is so expensive, and because the fuel is so expensive, when they go out, if they don't ha have a good catch, then that's a lot harder. Yeah, so it's not that lucrative anymore. I mean, the it, It's not. You have to send them down to the Gulf Coast to be processed because we don't have the processing plants here. Now, Port Royal, when they rebuild the dock, they're talking about building a processing plant there so that will supply That would them. certainly help the shipping industry in South Carolina. Yes, it would. It would. And in, that would also be a tourist attraction. <laughs> it definitely would be a tourist attraction, yes. Well, throughout mm -hmm. your book, mm -hmm. you have, mm -hmm. you've got these sayings mm -hmm. about friends don't serve friends foreign shrimp. Right, right. And I also had um, in the, uh, the specialty chapter on the Black Seafood Co-op that was on Hilton Head, BASF was being wooed by the politicians to build a petrochemical plant on the Colleton River. This is back in the 1960s. 69, 70, 71. Yeah, BASF. Uh, it, the story of the fight against BASF is an incredible mm -hmm. one because it brought together the black shrimpers, all of the fishermen, the folks who ran Hilton Head, Sea Pines, mm -hmm. and conservationists, mm -hmm. not just in South Carolina, but literally across the country. And it started with the folks at the Black Co-op. They filed the first lawsuit. 
But the, the um, in 1969, 1970, when they were trying to build this plant, the black um, co-op sent people to Texas to look at a similar plant that had been built, and they couldn't see anything living in the water. And they were very concerned about their livelihood. They knew that people needed jobs, but if they lost their livelihood in the 70s and 80s was the their prime time, then this was not, not going to be good. And the this plant was going to discharge 250 million gallons of affluent a day in the Colleton River, which was only three miles above Hilton Head. And the Colleton River is not a river. It's an embayment. It doesn't have a headwater that flushes it. So pollutants weren't going to go out quickly. And and this was this was big. The NAACP even came to try it. And and one of the really fun things is there was a boat, a forty-five foot boat, the Captain Dave, that went from Hilton Head with three members of the Black Co-op and three members of the Sea Pines Company with a petition and forty-five thousand signatures up the coast stopping at various ports, and they arrived in Washington on the first Earth Day with 25 pounds of shrimp to give to Secretary of the Interior Hickel and to um, encourage him not to let BASF build. And there had been a lot of posters of BASF, bad fish, bad air sick fish, and the um, on the side of the boat, there was a sign that the president of BASF had said, "We're a two billion dollar company, and we're going to flush you down the toilet." And they lost. <laughs> they lost because Hickel said, "If you cannot guarantee that you're not going to spoil the waters, then you can't build there." And one of their top people admitted to Tim Timms, who was a, a politician. We would have ruined. We would have ruined the water. And afterward, he denied saying it. But it, yeah, thank heavens they didn't, because so, we wouldn't be there. I wouldn't be here. <laughs> well, uh, no, and that mm-hmm. as it, it was an interesting coalition of folks. Yes, yes, they all worked together. All right, what impact did Hurricane Hugo have on? Oh, Hurricane Hugo hit dead center on McClellanville. And the devastation of uh, the boats that how far they they went in and how big the winds and the waters and, I mean, people um, escaping to schools thinking they were safe and had to stand on top of desks. Lincoln High School in to, to survive, yeah. um, but they all rallied around each other, and it's it's an amazing story. And I have a, a what I think is a pretty amazing picture of, of Hugo in 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 the McClellanville chapter. And Hurricane Hugo was in 1989. Yes. So many people have moved into the coast since then. Uh, they got no idea if we ever got another one. No. Well, I mean, we thought Matthew was bad, and Irma was—she wasn't so bad. But the devastation of the 10-foot surges that hit Hilton Head and the 16 inches of rain were nothing compared to the winds and the water that hit with Hugo dead, dead on McClellanville. And the boats had been— they had taken the boats upstream for safety, and it didn't make any difference. No, no. Some of them, um, and and some of them didn't. I mean, we we had two boats that couldn't get off the dock for Matthew um, at Hudson's. One, the engine was out, and the other one, he couldn't get it started, and they just sank right at the dock because when the waters rise up and then they fall and the boat is tied up too tight, it just, just totally sinks. But th- there is a sidebar that, in Edisto that shows the how they would t- take them up. Uh, typically, uh, when there's a hurricane coming, boats are taken up the creeks. And they have prepared for that by putting pilings on one side of the creek that they can tie to. And they used to use the live oaks on the other side 
And they would come up and they'd use probably 10 lines to tie up a boat um, in hopes that um, it wouldn't take as a direct hit. Let's hope it doesn't happen, but we know that it's going to happen sometime. Yes, yes. I mean, every summer we cross our fingers and hope that it doesn't, it's not going to hit. I guess people think of shrimp boats and shrimping as romantic. And some of the pictures you have are beautiful. Others are very honest. And I want to say the pictures speak for themselves about this is a heck of a way to try to earn a living. It is. If you, you're on some of these boats and you look at the, the wiring, the wires are sort of sticking out and, you know, they'll jockey a wire and to, to fix something and um, there are patches and there's rot in some places and there's mud and the decks, the decks are, are white and they wear white boots not to, to scratch them up. And they keep it very clean where all the shrimp is. But, you know, it's tight quarters and it's um, long hours and, and the water sprays up and you have to unfoul a line and or maybe the boat's gone up on the shore. It, there, there's just so much can go on in those boats. And in the winter, they, they try to paint them up and fix them up. And yeah, it's hard to describe the, the, the different kinds of boats. There's, a, there's some boats in Lazaretto that are hanging on by their fingernails it's, um, because they're so old and have not been kept up as well. Um, then there are other boats that are absolutely pristine, and, and it's um, there's a, there's a huge amount of variety. All right. One of the things that shrimpers had to deal with, well, in terms of environmentalists, are the TEDs. And the, would you explain to our listeners what a TED? Uh, the is? turtle excluders are, came there to help not have turtles caught in the nets. Before that, all kinds of things would come up in the shrimpers' nets that uh, there's a whole page with brown bready guns and ammunition and anchors. and But the turtles was the concern. And a group of people started trying to design a device that would keep a turtle from drowning. They cannot stay underwater for two hours because they have to breathe. And the nets don't come up every hour. They stay down for several hours. So people like Sinky Boone worked on building a device. And what it is, is the frontal-shaped net, the shrimp enter, and they hit a metal, round metal device that has bars in it. And the bars are wide enough apart that the shrimp can go through, but the turtles can't because they're bigger, and they bump into the circle and the bars and directs them to a flap in the bottom of the net so that they can escape. And when this was being tested, they did very, very interesting um, tests on it, and the number of turtles that escape within a certain number of minutes was incredible. So it's been very successful. All right. What impact did that have on the shrimpers, though? Did they... it, it cost, well, it cost them money to get the equipment. And in the beginning, some of them didn't like it, and they'd tie, they thought they were losing catch, so they would try to tie the flaps. And others say that they lose too much. But I believe now they have pretty much, they, they've accepted it, and uh, they don't lose that much of the catch, and, and it really does make a big difference for the turtles. Well, especially in South Carolina, uh, and protecting the, the uh, turtles along the coast, they, they come up every year to lay their eggs. I know you went out on a shrimp boat. Were you there when the when the net dumped, and then you had to did yes. you help? I even pulled. I, I dumped the net. I pulled the string in the bottom of the bag and dumped the net. And what fell out? Oh, the, all the shrimp and, and all kinds of bycatch. Well, what, 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 what was your bycatch that day? Oh, we had we had stingrays, we had octopus, we had squid, we had several kinds of fish. Unfortunately, in the early days of shrimping, there was so much more shrimp, and now 
there's probably a lesser balance of, of, of the large quantity of shrimp. Now, the squid and the octopus, they put in buckets to take to um, various people who wanted them. You used to the bycatch, you just tossed it overboard. You do, or, or you just, they have little scupper holes in the side of the railing. There's an open section, and you can just sweep bycatch right out into the water. And there are plenty of birds out there ready to catch and eat it. Because you can tell when a net's being dumped or the, the shrimp is in the area because the birds are flocking. Yes. Ready to help. Beverly, I hate to tell you, but Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Oh, well, we have to say, eat more local shrimp. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted to thank you for being on the journal and eat more local shrimp. What a good way to end our conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. When I first met Beverly Bowers Jennings, she said, you know, I've told people I've written a book about the shrimp industry, and their eyes glaze over. Well, folks, this is not just a history of the industry. It's a history of the people. It's a part of South Carolina culture, and it is beautifully illustrated. More than 800 photographs that shrimpers and their families have shared with Miss Jennings to produce a book that includes recipes, personal accounts. It brings the story to life. Shrimping as an industry is on the decline, but it still is an important part of our history and our culture. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.